It is a joy to be here. I hope... Uh, that's right, there's cabs right outside. Um, I hope everybody had a great summer, because it's over. And if you didn't have a great summer, that, this year, that was the only chance you got, really. I, um, I didn't have much of a summer myself. I was working on a book deadline, as all my friends will tell you. Uh, and I'm kind of bitter about it. But um, you'd never know from my sunny demeanor how bitter I am inside. Uh, <clears throat> but, I, but I am bitter. And you should just, you just stay out of it. Um, okay, tonight marks our first Socrates in the City event of the fall uh, season. So we thought it would be appropriate to have somebody talk about the fall. Look, I don't write this trash, okay? You take it up, take it up with my staff. I, uh, I can read a teleprompter and that's it. Um, but, uh, yeah, so fall, fall. I'm glad you got that joke. It means that uh, you didn't have too much wine or something because that's uh, it's a terrible joke. I, I have to say that um, we did our first Socrates in the City event in the fall of 2000, uh, which is... An amazing thing for me to think about that it's that long. It, was anybody here at our first Socrates event? Uh, I don't know if you might remember we had like bobbing for apples and the, do you remember that? We had like the whole bales of hay. It was a whole different shtick. And we, but seriously, I, I'm being serious. September of 2000, does anybody remember if, I know two people who were here, Mr. K. Anybody at that original event? A, hand, a handful, so, somebody, no, I'm Eric, thanks. Uh, but a handful of you were there. And then, um, this will help me. If you're here tonight, would you raise your hand? That's, okay. That's like 40. Um, the, uh, then we had an event in October of 2000. That was the one, it was the night after the Gore-Bush election. And everybody stayed up to like 4 a.m. waiting to see who won. And... You know, it, you didn't know for a month. So, that, so the next day, we had our Socrates event, and everybody was tired and sort of sitting there because no one had slept the night before. And uh, the speaker and I were very insulted by the way people were falling asleep. But we know it had nothing to do with us. But um, it's, it, it is amazing to me, seriously, that that is now eight full years ago. Uh, we are very grateful that we've been able to uh, keep going for eight years. And uh, we're grateful to uh, those of you who've been a part of this. We're grateful uh, for those of you who have given financially. The Templeton uh, Foundation this year gave us a, a grant, and a number of you have been part of this. And we really are uh, we're very grateful. And uh, I'd like to give a shout-out to uh, Frankie and Shipping. We couldn't have done it without you. Thank you. And uh, a lot of people have been a part of this. But um, eight years ago, if you think about it, uh, Bill Clinton was still president Hillary was the first lady. President George W. Bush was, he was just the governor of a very large state. Not, not the largest by any means, but a large state. He was the governor of a large state. Um, this actually freaked me out. Senator Obama and Governor Palin were still kids in junior high school. Um, 
that's a, that is amazing when you think about how time flies. They were just kids in junior high, and both both on the AV squad in their different. Um, um, well, look, it's it's very hard uh, not to think about the election lately. I, I try to not think about it. I can't help myself. It's gotten really bad in the last couple of weeks, as you know. The whole, the whole Sarah Palin thing kind of like really got into my head and just kind of messed me up. I, I, I know that I was off my game for the last couple of weeks, and uh, I just couldn't stay on message. I noticed that about myself as I'm campaigning around, and I even I lost the bump in the polls that I had coming out of the last Socrates event. That I just so it's it's been hard. It's been hard. Um, but <clears throat> thank you. Uh, as I have been trying to prepare uh, for tonight, I really have tried to keep the election out of my mind. But it turns out I only have control over my conscious mind, and even that's kind of iffy. I'll be honest. Uh, but my conscious, my unconscious, I should say, kind of has, has a mind of its own. I can't control it, and I find that by trying not to think about the election when I'm awake, uh, it only emerges emerges the more uh, in my my dream state which is when I'm sleeping. Um, last night I was trying to think about uh, tonight and about original sin in the Garden of Eden, but when I fell asleep I, I had a very weird dream about the Garden of Eden, um, but also about the election. It was kind of weird. It kind of snuck in, kind of snuck in. And um, it, was, it was quite a dream I had last night. I, no, I, I was waiting for the wavy lines to appear that signal that we're going into a dream sequence. Justin, that's not going to happen, evidently. No wavy line. Yeah, the, the Union League Club, uh, they have a rule against the wavy line thing. So I'll just tell you the dream. We were going to show it to you. But uh, uh, yeah, basically in the dream, um, you know, it was, it was pretty standard. I mean, it's like a weird dream. Adam and Eve were in the garden, except, of course, they were played by uh, John McCain and Sarah Palin, right? I mean, it was kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a dream. It's a dream. Um, and it made, it made no sense, because dreams are weird. But... but uh, even though it was before the fall, right, Sarah Palin was wearing glasses in the dream. And, and McCain's hair was white, right? And we know that, you know, before the fall, those kinds of signs of aging and bodily deterioration, they, they didn't exist, right? So, but, you know, it was a dream, and I didn't have much to say about the details. That's just the way it was unspooling to me at the time. Um, I don't remember much. It's not much of a plot. I just remember at one point... Uh, John McCain, you know, he named the animals. Um, and, and Sarah Palin, she shot the animals. And, and, and obviously that makes no sense because, you know, this supposedly before the fall, that's kind of what you'd call technically it's a, a pre-death environment, you know. Um, so I think probably hunting would be ruled out, right? I'm just, I'm just saying, you know. But uh, it, ha it happened in the dream. Uh, McCain, you know, he named them, and, and uh, Governor Palin uh, shot them. And, um, and then, and this I remember very vividly, she then she field-dressed them and hauled uh, the carcasses uh, back to Wasilla with a... Um, in the dream, uh, it wasn't a snowmobile. It was a snow machine in the dream. You heard me. Um, yeah, it was a snow machine, and, and it, it, that doesn't make any sense either. There's no snow in the Garden of Eden, and I don't think Wasilla's probably in the Garden of Eden either, but somehow this is, uh, this is how it went down. Um, my unconscious is just, it's just sloppy that way, and I'm just cheering with you what happened. Now, I have to say, this is uh, what made it interesting for me, was that in, in the dream, the role of God was, of course, played by Barack Obama. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 No, this is, look, uh, it's what happened. Um, 
and, and it, it makes some sense. I understand why my unconscious invented that idea because, you know, he's sort of above the fray and strong but not threatening. You know, like just sort of a pre-fall kind of nice guy God, not really the Old Testament God yet. He's still, he's still kind of innocent. Uh, he doesn't really expect Adam and Eve to mess up. Uh, and he's very disappointed by it. It's, it's almost like he gets mugged by reality. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, and then the umpire really hits the fan, as they say, right? And it gets very ugly. And uh, it, that's how it went down. That's, and now, I, I should say that my uh, unconscious mind probably also cast Obama in the role of God because the creator God of Genesis makes order out of chaos, and he sort of organizes <laughs> the chaos, right? And you could sort of say that it, in some ways, in Eden, he sets up the first community, right? Kind of organizes first community. God of Genesis, organ yeah, right. So, uh, so I think that that's what my mind was, you know, was chewing on with this stuff, and, and that's why uh, Obama was, was the God figure. And I have to say that it was a nonpartisan dream, because although God was played by Obama, I'm sorry to say that the serpent was played by Joe Biden. And that's, that's also... It's not the kind of thing, you know, I didn't make it up. It's just what I dreamt. Um, and it's not really fair because there's no snake that's, you know, going to get hair plugs. It's just like a cheap, that's a cheap shot. If you think about it, if you're really, you know, it, it's, it's not. Uh, but the unconscious mind can sometimes be mean and petty. Um, and I, I don't pretend to understand it, okay? Really. Just read Finnegan's Wake. It's all in there. Um, and at the end of the dream, it got really... Um, Confusing. I think that I believe there was a Lilith figure in it. Okay, I believe there was a Lilith figure. I'm not clear exactly who it was who was playing Lilith, but I remember she was very, very angry. And I, I, I believe she had some kind of home colonial, like in like in Chappaqua, possibly. But I, it's, it was very unclear in the dream. It was very unclear. And just before I woke up, the dream took a, happily took a non-political turn. Cain and Abel uh, showed up, and they were played by Ernest Borgnine and Roy Orbison. And that was, that was just great, because I'm so tired of this election. I don't know about you, but I'm very tired of the election. And uh, Ernest Borgnine didn't kill Roy Orbison or anything uh, uh, in the dream, because uh, you'll remember that Cain kills Abel. Remember that? Yeah, good. Um, but, but, but Ernest Borgnine, he made fun of, of, uh, of Roy's glasses, and, and, he, and he said that Roy used too much uh, dye in his hair. It was like that kind of like like a petty argument, and they got in a scuffle. And when I woke up, this is true. There was shoe polish on my pillow. That's true. Yeah, no, that's true. But I was just so glad to wake up. You, wow, well, you've been a great audience. Thank you. Uh, and and uh, I, I was glad to think like, okay, Socrates and City is happening today. It's going to happen today, and we're actually going to get to hear from an expert on original sin. Is Ellen Jacobs here? You hear Ellen? Um, I've, I've wanted to, uh, people say, you know, you deal with evil and suffering. Can you do something more cheerful? Uh, evidently not. We're talking about original sin tonight. Um, I have wanted to get Alan Jacobs here, uh, to speak, uh, for a long time, I have to tell you. And, uh, he's a brilliant writer and thinker, unlike our other speakers who are duds. You guys have been here, right? They're duds. They're duds. Uh, really, we need some fresh blood. Um, we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Jacobs on a subject that is right up the alley of Socrates and City is one of the big questions uh, of all time, question of original sin. Um, now, if you didn't think it's possible to write a book on original sin that's entertaining, 
and fascinating, you're wrong because Dr. Jacobs has written that book and it is actually very hard to put down, uh, as I hope most of you will find out. Uh, be careful though, because if you pick it up, you know, you really, you'll have a hard time putting it down. It's just that kind of a book. Um, that's not just my parochial opinion. Um, that's the parochial opinion of many people who've, who've read the book. Really, it is. So, um, Publishers Weekly uh, gave it a starred review. Now, those, we have the same publisher, right? Harper One. And, you know, Publishers Weekly giving you a starred review in the publishing world, that's really a big, that's a big deal. Um, publishers Weekly also called it brilliant and utterly engrossing. You know, again, they're not, they tend not to be so friendly. Um, Alan Wolf of uh, Boston College said that Alan Jacobs is, quote, one of the smartest and wittiest writers around on matters involving religion and original, and original sin is a gem. Um, the quotes pretty much go downhill from those two, but I just want to give you the, <laughs> just the two best. Uh, Dr. Jacobs is a professor of English at Wheaton College in Illinois, and um, we were actually, one of the questions we want to answer, Socrates in the City, is can anything good come out of Wheaton? And, um, uh, oh, uh, Dr. Jacobs has written many books, including one uh, on C.S. Lewis called The Narnian, The Life and Imagination of C.S. Lewis, which also got a lot of praise. In fact, Richard John Newhouse called Alan Jacobs, quote, a worthy biographer of C.S. Lewis. Now, we've had Richard John Newhouse here, and we know he doesn't really throw praise around uh, lightly. In fact, he, he hates everything. Uh, <laughs> And he can really be very, very sour. So kudos to you, Alan Jacobs. I, I don't know, you, you fooled him. Um, what did you do, like you slipped him like a 20 or something? You did something, because he never, he just doesn't like anything. He's like Mikey. Um, so we know you're, if, you, if he liked it, wow. Um, Dr. Jacobs has written for many magazines, including the Weekly Standard and one of my favorites, Books and Culture. Books and Culture, gotta love it. So tonight, finally, we have the great privilege of hearing from... Alan Jacobs. Thanks. Wow. You know, um, back in the 1950s, there was a, a set of congressional hearings on the state of baseball. And uh, one of the people they invited to speak on the state of baseball was um, Casey Stengel, then the manager of the New York Yankees. And Casey, with his famous warpings and twistings of the English language gave a 40-minute uh, speech that uh, it's safe to say no one understood a word of, uh, not even Casey. Um, and when he was finally done, the uh, committee thanked him, and um, the next uh, guest, uh, the next witness was Mickey Mantle. And Mickey Mantle came up and they asked him what did he think about these issues, and he said, well, I guess my views are pretty much the same as Casey's. Um, so can I just say my views are pretty much the same as Eric's, and then... Is that good enough? Because that was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I am going to talk to you about, about sin, a topic uh, with which uh, I will be forever linked in the public mind, no doubt. Um, the, um, um, I was actually uh, speaking not long ago to the poet Mary Carr, and uh, she said, why did you decide to write about original sin? Um, and I said, well, you know, don't, don't you people who teach in the writing workshop say, write what you know. And... Um, <laughs> She said, is that what we say? She said, I thought it was reap what you sow. Um, and I guess it's kind of 
I, it occurred to me later that it was actually a sequence, right? First you write what you know, and then you reap what you sow. So um, that's, that's where I am now. It, it, it doesn't make me all that happy. Um, a few years ago, I, uh, I wrote a book about, uh, called A Theology of Reading. And the, the topic of the book was, uh, how do you read charitably? How, how can you read books in a spirit of Christian love? And um, uh, that book uh, uh, gets assigned at, at seminaries from time to time. And one of my uh, former students at Wheaton uh, attended a Princeton seminary, and it was assigned in a class there. And uh, they were having a conversation later, and, and he, but he and some, several other students in his class, and he said, you know, that guy was my teacher. They said, what guy? And he said, Jacobs. And uh, his, his fellow student said, you mean the love guy? Um, and I thought that was so great to be known, however briefly, as the love guy. And now I'm just going to be the sin guy, which is, <laughs> I think I'm coming down in the world pretty far at that, at that point. Um, yeah, original sin. And I'm going to begin talking about original sin by talking about a great figure from the history of Christianity, the evangelist George Whitfield. And um, here's the story I want to tell uh, to start off with. In the uh, middle of the 18th century, the great English evangelist George Whitfield gained the friendship and the patronage of the Countess of Huntington, Selina Countess of Huntington. And uh, she was very enthusiastic about the message that he uh, and his fellow evangelists were, were spreading, and she tried to share it with her fellow aristocrats. But Whitfield's relentless emphasis on the burden of original sin, this was the point from which he always began his sermons, um, was deeply offensive to some of the countess's acquaintance. And it's interesting that it was offensive to them because it was such an egalitarian message. There's a wonderful letter to Selina, Countess of Huntington, from the Duchess of Buckingham. And here's what the Duchess of Buckingham wrote. I thank your ladyship for the information concerning the Methodist preachers. She wrote, failing to grasp that Whitfield was not a Methodist, but that's okay. But the doctrines are most repulsive and strongly tinctured with impertinence and disrespect towards their superiors. In perpetually endeavoring to level all ranks and to do away with all distinctions, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. <laughs> now, it must be acknowledged that the Duchess of Buckingham, who was rumored to be the illegitimate daughter of King James II, uh, took these high thoughts to an extreme. Uh, Sir Horace Walpole wrote of her, she was more mad with pride than any mercer's wife in Bedlam. Um, but it is certainly true. She was absolutely right when she said that the doctrine of original sin is utterly at variance with high rank and good breeding. I got interested in this topic some years ago when I was studying the French philosopher Rousseau. And I was reading his philosophical novel, Emile, which is a novel in which he describes how children should be educated um, if you had all the resources that you needed and you had nothing to impede you, how should you educate children? And that first, that, that book begins with this sentence. Let us set down as an incontestable maxim that the first movements of nature are always right. There is no original perversity in the human heart. There is not a single vice to be found in it of which it cannot be said how and whence it entered. 
So it's very interesting that Rousseau, his whole philosophy of education begins with his denying the Christian doctrine of original sin. That's, that's how he thinks you need to start. You start by saying that there's nothing wrong with us when we're born. That, in fact, when we're born, everything is right with us. And, and when I was reading that, I thought, well, that's a really interesting way to begin a treatise on education, to start talking about original sin. And then as I was reading that research, I just happened to come across a sermon by John Wesley called A Sermon on the Education of Children. Same topic, all of a sudden. And here's what he writes. After all that has been so plausibly written concerning the innate idea of God, after all that has been said of its being common to all men in all ages and nations, it does not appear that man has naturally any more idea of God than any of the beasts of the field. He has no knowledge of God at all, no fear of God at all, neither is God in all his thoughts. Whatever change may afterwards be wrought, whether by the grace of God or by his own reflection or by education, he is by nature a mere atheist. And then Wesley goes on to talk about how that innate atheism actually makes people extremely rebellious, uh, prone to corruption, in fact, corrupt from the moment of their birth, from the moment of their conception. And then I happened to notice that Wesley's sermon was preached just a few years after Rousseau wrote Emile. And I thought, what a strange thing that this doctrine, which appears to be such a sort of arcane and recondite doctrine, would nevertheless have such enormous implications in very practical matters. For instance, how you raise your children. You're going to raise your children very differently if you think that they are naturally pure and innocent than if you think that they are naturally rebellious and have no innate idea of God or morality. It's a doctrine which makes a difference in how we think about things. There's, um, um, there's a wonderful <clears throat> story, a man named Richard Edgeworth, who was an a, a Irish nobleman who was an early disciple of Rousseau's and decided to educate his son according to Rousseauian principles. And that meant never saying no to him, never correcting him, never punishing him, and never allowing him to wear shoes. Uh, Rousseau was really big on being barefoot at all times. And so Edgeworth says, fine, we're not going to give him any shoes. Um, and so, so he raised this boy ass uh, assuming his pure natural innocence. And when the boy was about eight or nine years old, he wrote a letter to a friend and he said, you know, he's really a delightful child in so many ways, but he has no disposition to obey me. <laughs> he, he seemed very puzzled by this. Um, and, and, and later on came to think that, well, to, tell you, to put it bluntly, that he had been kind of sold a bill of goods. And uh, perhaps he didn't know that while Rousseau was the father of six children, he had had them all put up for adoption immediately after their birth. And so he had actually never fought, he had never raised a child, which any of you who have children uh, may realize that probably explains his view about their natural innocence and purity. <laughs> never been around any of them. So what I understood at that moment is that the doctrine of original sin has, has a complicated history and that it's not just theological or intellectual, but it's, it's cultural. It, what we think about our innate moral disposition has huge consequences for the art we make, our models of psychological health and illness, and, and yes, the way we raise our children. And I also thought at that moment 
that it would be an interesting and challenging task to tell the story of original sin for people who, who don't necessarily believe in it or who know that they don't believe in it. For people, you know, maybe even people like the Duchess of Buckingham, uh, for whom it's a, a scandal and a stumbling block. Uh, for, for people who, for whatever reason, have, have clear consciences. About 20 years ago, Wendell Berry wrote a wonderful essay called Why I Am Not Going to Buy a Computer, which got almost no attention when it was first published, but uh, created a little tsunami when it was reprinted by Harper's a while later. One of Berry's reasons for not buying a computer was that he did not want to increase his dependence on the energy companies. And this point elicited some harumphing from readers, including a man named James Rhodes, who insisted that he would continue to plug his computer into the wall with a clear conscience. (laughs) Barry's reply to this is noteworthy. Quote, But virtually all of our consumption is now extravagant, and virtually all of it consumes the world. It is not beside the point that most electrical power comes from strip-mined coal. The history of the exploitation of the Appalachian coal fields is long, and it is available to readers. I do not see how anyone can read it and plug in any appliance with a clear conscience. If Rhodes can do so, that does not mean his conscience is clear. It means that his conscience is not working. (laughs) Now... Because I actually don't want to give serious consideration to the possibility that I shouldn't have a computer, I think we should focus on Barry's larger point. (laughs) You know, uh, I don't know how many of you are academics, but this is something that we're really good at. If somebody says something that's really uncomfortable, then we can say, well, let's address the larger point. (laughs) And, And that you can kind of avoid anything that's too uncomfortable that way. I recommend this to you. It's something that you can use in a world of situations. Okay. Doesn't work with my wife, however, I've noticed. <laughs> but his larger point in this case is a good one. If your conscience is not pricking you in an uncomfortable spot, that could indicate two very different conditions. Conscience is in this respect like a smoke alarm. Its silence could indicate clean, pure air, or it could indicate a dead battery. It seemed to me as I began uh, thinking about this topic and writing this book that it would not do any good simply to shout fire in the crowded theater of our culture. Um, Maybe a a slighter ambition was called for to give some readers um, a reason to wonder whether they smell anything odd. And if so, could that be smoke? Here's another way to put it. I'm trying to show people what it's like to be a divided self. This is what St. Paul was when he said, that which I would do, I do not. That which I would not, I do. Or the great St. Augustine of Hippo, in the pages of his confessions, just before his, his famous moment of conversion, I mean, everybody knows the story about, you know, the tole lege, pick up and read. But there's a really wonderful passage just before that. After nearly a decade of, of vacillation, he encounters multiple stories of people who have given up their whole lives to seek God, sometimes just as a result of, of reading stories about other people who had given up their lives to seek God. And in the climax to a lifetime of self-exasperation, he turns to his friend Olypius and says, what is wrong with us? This is a wonderful passage. He says, what is wrong with us that we're just, we're just endlessly vacillating when there are other people who have actually made decisive choices? So, He's a divided self, you know, he's torn, he's back and forth, back and forth. Maybe that doesn't sound like a very attractive thing to be. I mean, who wants to be torn in that way? Who wants to be divided in that way? But but what if the alternative is to be whole but lost? It's a 
To be a divided stuff is to be in the midst of a drama. And this story of the sense of Christian life as a drama began very early in the history of the faith. And this conviction of being infected or afflicted by, by original sin, that, that's the motive engine of it. That's where the drama comes from, that there's something in me that's prompting me in, a, in, in, in an unhealthy direction, a direction that on part of me doesn't want to follow and another part does want to follow. We've already seen just now how Augustine described his conversion as the product of a great internal debate, this volley of argument and counter-argument. But this tension and uncertainty persists even among many lifelong Christians because of the ongoing sense of dividedness that many of us have on a daily basis, the sense that we're not going where we want to be going. You know, whether you have religious belief or you don't have religious belief, whether you're convinced or you're agnostic or you're somewhere in between, that sense of being pushed and pulled, of being a push-me-pull-you, you know, is, is a pretty common experience. And it found its first really lasting expression in the work of one of Augustine's contemporaries, a Christian Latin poet from Spain named Prudentius. Okay, and I'm not even, before I go any further, I ain't suggesting that anybody read Prudentius. It is no fun to read Prudentius. But there's something interesting here. He wrote a really curious poem that he called the Psychomachia, which means soul struggle. Okay? And, and it was a very famous poem, even though it's one of the worst poems that I have ever read in my life. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis actually writes about this poem in his book, The Allegory of Love. And, uh, he said, and Lewis writes, while it is true that the bellum intestinum, the in, internal warfare, is the root of all allegory, it is no less true that only the crudest allegory will represent it by a pitched battle. And that's exactly what Prudentius does. He tells this kind of, this kind of war story. So Prudentius knows that you know, patience is one of the virtues that you ought to have, but, but how do you represent patience in a battle? This is kind of a tough problem for him. So his answer is to have patience heavily armed and just stand there doing nothing <laughs> while Ira, otherwise known as Wrath, attacks wildly, repeatedly, and of course unsuccessfully. There's no, that Ira can't get past the, the, the defenses of, um, of, of, of patience. And so finally, when um, uh, uh, he's run out of ideas, but not out of fury, because how could wrath cease to be wrathful, he just commits suicide. This is called patience rewarded, right? <laughs> Lewis also calls our attention to the poetic difficulty that Prudentius is faced with when he must portray the battle between superbia, that's pride, and men's humilis, or humility. What happens when you've got a battle between pride and humility? Well, when, uh, when superbia falls into a hole in the ground, <laughs> that's actually what happens, is that just whoop, topples into a hole in the ground and is thus defeated. The moment has now come, writes Lewis, when humility must triumph and yet remain humble. Prudentius solves this problem by saying that humility uplifts her face with moderated cheer. <laughs> Lewis is, here's Lewis's comment. Nothing could suggest more vividly the smirk of a persevering governess who has finally succeeded in getting a small boy in trouble with his father. <laughs> so it's a really horrible poem. But for all of his haplessness, Prudentius managed to set in motion a great depiction of depicting the life of the sinner who would be saved as a play, a kind of staged contest among the various forces at work within a divided self. And on this account of human life, 
that we've been sketching out here, the one that begins with, with, with Whitfield it, it, telling everyone, including the Duchess of Buckingham, that she's in the same situation as everyone else. Well, if that's the truth, then all selves are divided. And so when you start getting all these medieval, I, I bet you didn't expect you were going to hear about, you know, late Latin poems and medieval allegories, but here we go, you know. Um, here's one more. The, the most famous of all uh, medieval plays is a poem, is a play called Everyman, right? And the idea that everyone is, is, is facing the same kind of spiritual struggle. It's the most famous of these medieval morality plays, uh, but it's not really typical because the everyman in the story is not actually fighting the bellum intestinum because God has sent death for him. So there, there's, there's really no bellum left to fight. You know, I mean, you know, the war is over at this point, and he lost. Um, there's a really comical moment near the beginning of every man where God is on his throne in paradise and he, he, he tells about all the things that he's done for human beings and he says, I could do no more than I did, truly. <laughs> you know, like, I did everything I could possibly do for this guy and, and he's still messed up and, you know, so you just can't blame me for it. Um, uh, the sinful nature of human beings is tough to overcome. And so when death comes to every man, he says, in the world, each living creature for Adam's sin must die of nature. So every man just has to reckon up his accounts and find out whether he's in the black or in the red. He discovers that uh, his goods, his worldly possessions won't help him. Uh, in the end, he has some knowledge, and knowledge teaches him about his situation, and, and uh, he has some good works, and so he, he's got some people on his side, and he, he kind of squeaks through. It's pretty close, but, but he does squeak through, and he doesn't go to hell. Uh, but, but for people who are not like every man at the point of death, more interesting morality play might be this one called The Castle of Perseverance. The protagonist of this one is called Mankind. And in this one, we see the true inheritance of Prudentius because they've got, uh, you've got abstinence, uh, charity, uh, industry, and their teammates lined up against gluttony, backbiter, and uh, this is my favorite one, lust liking. <laughs> I think if they were like a, what if they were like a fantasy psychomachia league and you had an annual draft, you know, I, mean, I would choose, I would totally choose lust liking with my first pick every, every year. <laughs> But, but particular interest to us, there might be the scene early in the play when the good angel and the bad angel enter and position themselves at either side of mankind. Yeah, this is a familiar scene, right? If you're a, of, um, you know, of a certain age, as the French say, you may have seen it in a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Or, in, or you may have, uh, well, I want some other places that I would rather not mention, but if we are our children or of more recent vintage, it's in the movie The Emperor's New Groove. Uh, recent uh, incarnation is in the Mac and PC ads. Uh, there's one where PC is looking at a lovely photo book made by Mac and a red-suited devil appears at his left shoulder urging him to tear the book to pieces while a white-suited angel at his right encourages him to loosen up and have some fun. But wherever we see it or have seen it, we always recognize this theme by its two invariable features. First, the persuasive resources of the good angel seem pretty weak or insipid in comparison to the bold, confident sales pitches of the devils, who always seem to know just what buttons to push and who therefore always win the day. And second, the scene is always played for laughs. But in the Castle of Perseverance, mankind isn't laughing, and nor, as we shall see, was the great Dr. Faustus. 
Well, whether played for laughs as we play it now or for terror, as our ancestors did, this theme tells us something about original sin, for, for it is because of original sin that the devils always have a leg up on the better angels of our nature. The angel and devil on the shoulders motif seems to tell us that we have a choice. It happens at a moment of decision. It pauses the action and gives us the opportunity to turn aside from our nefarious schemes. But damned if we don't always make the same choice, as though freedom of the will were illusory or something. And so now, uh, theatrical or living room audiences rather than worshipers, but we once more confirm our membership in what one scholar of original sin called the universal democracy of sinners. And if seeing that can bring us to giggles rather than paroxysms of penitence, that can only be because we don't take all this quite as seriously as our ancestors did. Maybe we don't think it's going to land us in hell. If the first temptation in history was external uh, via this inexplicably uh, crafty serpent, otherwise known as Joe Biden, none of the subsequent ones have been, at least not straightforwardly, uh, so external. Everyone who read Prudentius in his time or who later watched every man was surely aware that on some level what's being represented in superbia or lust like is a kind of undefined combination of, of external evil forces and our own internal sinful inclinations. Where do the devils stop and where does original sin begin? When we read of the devils being self-tempted, that's what Milton says about them, self-tempted. Don't we have a little shudder of recognition there? Whatever the temptation might have been for Adam and Eve, for us, the devil on our shoulder is only truly dangerous because of the devil that's already inside. That's why in these comic depictions that we modern specialize in, have you noticed this? The angel and the devil are almost invariably represented as versions of the particular character who's making the choice, right? So in the Tom and Jerry cartoons, it's little Tom the angel cat and little Tom the devil cat, you know, but they all wear, they wear his face. Their facets or segments or moods or something of Tom. There's a literary example that may clarify this issue a little bit. The best critic of, of J.R.R. Tolkien is a man named Tom Shippey. And he points out that everywhere in The Lord of the Rings you get a, this kind of uh, blurring of the lines between external and internal temptation. And you see that especially in the scenes in The Lord of the Rings that focus on the ring itself, the ring of power made by the Dark Lord Sauron. Um, when early in the book, uh, Gandalf, and remember this, Gandalf asked Frodo to hand him the ring. We're told that, quote, it suddenly felt very heavy, as if either it or Frodo himself was in some way reluctant for Gandalf to touch it. Right? Either it or Frodo himself. A little later in the end called The Prancing Pony, Frodo, quote, felt the ring on its chain and quite unaccountably the desire came over him to slip it on and vanish out of the silly situation. It seemed to him somehow as if the suggestion came to him from outside, from someone or something in the room. And then later, maybe most tellingly of all, when he's wearing the ring, he sits upon the seat of Ammon Hen and the great eye of Sauron fixes him. And he heard himself, quote, he heard himself crying out, never, never. Or was it, verily I come, I come to you? He could not tell. Then he hears the voice of Gandalf, though he does not know that it's Gandalf, commanding him to remove the ring. The conflict between these two powers torments him. 
And they really are an angel and a devil. I mean, in, in Tolkien's mythology, they really are an angel and a devil. The conflict between these two powers torments him until he suddenly becomes aware of himself again. And Tolkien says he's free to choose, and he chooses to take off the ring. The end of the story, the very verge of completing his quest, what Frodo chooses is to put the ring on one last time and assume its power. Or does he, in fact, choose? See, this is the thing that Shippey says. It's really interesting. Shippey points out that at that moment, Frodo does not say that he chooses anything. Rather, he says, I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I do not choose. Perhaps choice is no longer available to him. Perhaps if his will and the will of the ring could once have been distinguished, they can't be any longer. Augustine believed that we achieve true freedom not by doing what we want, but by conforming our wills to the will of God so that nothing in us rebels against him. That's what he thinks freedom is. What Frodo ex experiences is the demonic counterpart of that. His, his will is whole because he is completely enslaved to the ring. But up until that point... It's impossible to tell how much the temptation comes from outside Frodo or within him. Tolkien is an unusual writer. In some ways, he's modern. In some ways, he's very pre-modern. But if we're going to understand the, the modern way of thinking about these issues, we might turn to something, another literary work, older literary work, but a newer version of it, a very famous production of Christopher Marlowe's play, Dr. Faustus. The play was first performed... Right, just after Marlowe's death in 1593, right? And of course, Faustus, this is one of the great versions of the Faust myth, right? And as the drama begins, Faustus is sitting in his study, he's among his books, and he's trying to figure out which path to wisdom he ought to follow. So he says, I, I don't want to do logic, I don't want to do medicine, I don't want to do law, I definitely don't want to do theology. Um, and eventually he turns to the metaphysics of magicians, that's what he calls it the metaphysics of magicians. And as soon as he turns to that, the good angel and the evil angel appear. Here they are. You know, they pop out. You know, and the good angel says, Faustus, lay that damned book aside and gaze not on it lest it tempt thy soul. And the evil angel says, no, go forward. Become lord and commander of these elements. And, of course, it's the latter advice that excites Faustus's ambitious mind. Three times more in the open. Three, yeah, sorry. Three times more. I've got to get that number right. I'm an English teacher. I'm not a math guy. Three times more in the opening scenes of the play, the two angels appear. They enter and exit so quickly, no ex no, there's no real debates because I think Faustus has pretty much already made his decision, that in the early performances, the way they probably did it was to have them appear up above the stage, you know, sort of back behind, and they'd, they'd pop out into the light, and then they'd back up into the darkness, right? Um, because otherwise it can look kind of silly you know, as they keep running on stage and running off stage, right? Uh, the, the, the next to last appearance happens when um, Faustus has signed away his soul to Mephistopheles and the evil angel says, God cannot pity thee. And Faustus says, well, God will pity me if I repent. And the evil angel says, aye, but Faustus never shall repent. And, and, and this really goes home. And Faustus says, my heart's so hardened, I cannot repent. And they only show up again once more. Just a little bit later, he cry, and, and this, time, this time Faustus realizes he's in big trouble, and he cries out, ah, Christ my Savior, seek to save distressed Faustus's soul. But this time, it's not the insignificant little evil angel who shows up. It's actually a trinity of mighty demons, Mephistopheles, Beelzebub, and Lucifer. 
And they pretty much intimidate Faustus into vowing eternal enmity to God. And then you never see the angels again. You don't need the evil angel anymore. And the good angel can't do anything. So they're gone. In 1974, one of the great theatrical directors of the 20th century, John Barton, uh, he was the great, uh, he was a director who, who put on many wonderful performances for the Royal Shakespeare Company. He decided to stage this play. And his first choice, his, his first problem that he was faced is, who am I going to cast as Faustus? And he cast a completely unknown actor as Faustus. Um, his name was uh, Ian McKellen. I don't know whether he ever went on to do anything uh, after that, but, but apparently he was pretty good uh, in the job. So he's, he's, he was Faustus. But, but here's, now here's the problem that, that, um, that, that Barton has. How am I going to do these angels? I mean, you're, we're in the age of Tom and Jerry, for heaven's sake. You know, I mean, how am I going to do this and not make it just ludicrous? And he did the most amazing thing. He turned them into hand puppets. And Faustus holds them up and he says the words of the, evil, the good angel and the evil angel. These hand puppets. And I've actually seen, you know, film clips of this, and McKellen is just staggering. He's just incredible. You really see this astonishing inner debate in which part of him is being projected outwards into the good angel and then part being projected out into the evil angel. I mean, you know, nobody had heard of Ian McKellen before this, but nobody forgot him after this. It was an astonishing performance. It's a brilliant solution that, that Barton came up with. Because not only does he avoid sniggers from the audience at the appearance of the debating spirits, but he also plugs into 20th century psychology. For if the, the, it was the genius of Prudentius and people like him to reach into the divided self and pull out those voices and give them embodiment and distinct personality, it was the genius of Freud and his followers to stuff them all back into the box, to put them all back inside here. When Freud sees the good angels and evil angels of our stories as externalizations of our own inner conflicts, puppets made by us and able to speak only through our acts of ventriloquism, he's just going back to Augustine. When the devil made me do it is a scarcely legitimate excuse. Do we sin because we hear that devilish voice in our ears or do we hear that devilish voice because we're already prone to do so? Whatever answer we might give has very little practical significance. We are divided selves any way you cut it. And the pain, and in the pain and disorientation of that experience, we may not even care whether we were torn from the outside in or the inside out. I've been discussing the divided self, and some of you will know this is a title of the first book by the odd, once popular, and now virtually forgotten Scots psychiatrist, uh, R.D. Lang. And it was Lang's belief that the, um, the divided selves and the people who know themselves to be divided selves are the closest thing to healthy people that we have. They're the ones who know what sort of world that they're living in. The rest of us are people who, as Lang put it, are sleeping. They're the normal people. The normal people are the ones who are sleeping. And, and it's the people who know themselves to be divided who have actually rightly discerned their own situation in the world that they're living in. The schizophrenic hears voices, which normal people do not, but those voices often tell the truth. This is not so far from the Augustinian or the Pauline understanding of what it means to be at war within oneself, to be engaged in a, a psychomachia, a soul struggle. 
because sin can never be, in this understanding, completely eradicated. If you're undivided, you're lost. You're normal, maybe, but lost. In one of his books, Lang tells the story of a man, a a fellow Glaswegian, whose psychosis was treated by medication with some success. The voices he habitually heard were subdued, but they weren't completely silenced. To his doctors, this may have been a kind of victory, but not to the man himself. He could be heard on the ward from time to time talking back to them. Speak up, you buggers, he would say. I cannot hear ye. They'd gotten so, so low, but he wanted them back so he could hear what they had to say to him. I want to wrap up by going back to George Whitfield. After he came to recognize his own situation, he was ordained as a minister in the Church of England. He was converted, then ordained as a minister in the Church of England. Sometimes it goes the other way around. And almost immediately, um, he began the career that would make him one of the most famous men of his time, that of an itinerant outdoor preacher. Uh, He didn't really choose to be an itinerant outdoor preacher. It was just that most churches wouldn't let him preach. And then, and then when he did preach, he tended to kind of overflow the church. So, so he went outside. Um, and, 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 and outside, anybody who wanted to could come and hear him. Um, it's, um, there's a wonderful story in Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Some of you may know this. Benjamin Franklin and Whitfield became friends. Uh, though, uh, though Franklin was insistent that he was, uh, that, that Whitfield wasn't converting him at all. You know, once he offered some kindness to Whitfield, and, and Whitfield said, you know, I thank you that you would do this work for Christ's sake. And, 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 uh, and, and Franklin wrote back and he said, no, I'm not doing this for Christ's sake. I'm doing this for your sake. Um, but he, uh, he, he really tried to be very distant from uh, the power of Whitfield's oratory. And uh, when Whitfield came to, to Philadelphia, uh, uh, Franklin came to hear him. And what Franklin was interested in or what he said he was interested in was how many people could listen to this guy. That was his, that was, you know, because Whitfield apparently had an astonishing voice and people would crowd in by the thousands. And so what, what, um, what, what Franklin did was he walked to the perimeter. He got as far away as he could where he could still hear what Whitfield was saying. And he walked to the perimeter and then he, he estimated the size, the circumference of this circle and tried to do his best estimate at how many people could hear Whitfield preach. And were there to hear him. There were actually more people there than could hear him. There were people who were too far away to be able to hear. And, and Franklin's estimate was that there were about 30,000 people within uh, earshot of Whitfield. That's, and, and, and several thousand more who weren't that close. Um, so pretty remarkable. Um, and, um, <laughs> but Franklin was not interested in the evangelistic message. Um, he says, uh, here's a great story from the autobiography. He says, I happened to attend one of his sermons in the course of which... I perceived he intended to finish with a collection, and I silently resolved he should get nothing from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pistoles in gold. As he proceeded, I began to soften and concluded that I would give him the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that and determined me to give the silver. And he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. (laughs) But this was actually one of Whitfield's sermons uh, to try to get people to support an orphanage that he was building. So Franklin, as is often the case, is really praising himself for his soft-heartedness and his love for the little, poor little children. Um, but here's the thing that Franklin said. He was amazed by the popularity of Whitfield. 
He said the multitudes of all sects and denominations that attended his sermons were enormous. And it was a matter of speculation to me, who was one of the number, to observe the extraordinary influence of his oratory on his hearers and how much they admired and respected him, notwithstanding his common abuse of them, by assuring them that they were naturally half-beasts and half-devils. Why would anybody come and listen to somebody talk to them in that way? It's likely that Franklin could have heard such abuse at almost any of Whitfield's sermons because the great evangelist believed and repeatedly stated that an awareness not just of certain particular sins but of the burden of original sin was essential to true conversion. And he began every sermon by emphasizing that. Over and over again, that was how he started. It was necessary, he said, to understand that we have a natural perverseness of the heart that sets our will at enmity with the will of God. And he said, and if you're not aware of that, he said, do not call yourselves Christians. That's how insistent he was on the point. He tells a story. He actually talked about, he said, you know, this was not always well received. He talked about at one point being pelted with rotten fruit and pieces of dead cats. But he also records in his journal a moving account of his experience preaching to coal miners near Bristol in 1739. The preaching did not go well at first. Very likely there were some dead cats at hand. But gradually more and more of the coal miners began to hear his messages. He wrote, having no righteousness of their own to renounce, they were glad to hear of a Jesus who was a friend to publicans and came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The first discovery of their being affected was to see the white gutters made by their tears which plentifully ran down their black cheeks as they came out of their coal pits. Having no righteousness of their own to renounce. This is the heart of the matter. This is what... Whitfield thought was so essential about the idea of original sin. These coal miners who knew that they were not thought worthy of education or the vote or perhaps even admission to the local Anglican church heard from Whitfield that their condition was dire but no more dire than his own or that of the local lord or of the Duchess of Buckingham. One of the great hymns of later evangelicalism is Charlotte Elliott's Just As I Am, Just As I Am Without One Plea But That Thy Blood Was Shed For Me and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And this was the word of comfort that Whitfield brought to the miners, that God loves them just as they are and asks for nothing more than their repentant hearts, which is what he asks of everyone, even the Duchess of Buckingham. Really, it's no wonder that they wept. Thank you. That's right. Wonderful. Uh, We now have, as usual, some time for uh, questions and answers, and uh, we hope you'll avail yourself of the microphone up here, uh, over there, rather. Um, Now, I'm going to have to ask, please, not all at once. Take it easy. Please, one at a time. Now, you know what happens is that at the end, there'll be a line of 12 people, and I'll say, I'm sorry, we don't have time. So keep that in mind. Um, We... um, do have uh, one thing that we'll ask of you, because uh, we always end at, what, 8.15 sharp today, um, that you keep your questions, please, in the form of a question. Can you do that? 
and like maybe 19 syllables, if that's a, if that's okay with you. We've gone to 22, but uh, that's about it. Do you, do you have a question? You do? Yes. Why don't you go first? Why don't you go first? And uh, okay. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Doctor. I uh, um, just uh, doing a little bit of studying up before this. I, I and I came across Socrates' idea that uh, you know men are are basically uh, innocent yet ignorant, right? And sort of mm-hmm. that uh, the Christian concept of of being born in sin, right. or um, it's almost like a stain on the soul, if you right, will, right. a disease, you know, that mm-hmm. we inherit because of Adam and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I guess psychologically speaking, for the individual, doesn't Socrates' conception sort of allow a greater uh, a compassion for oneself? That instead, not so much that we're bad and wicked, but that we're, we're ignorant. We just don't know any better. Right, right. And, and really, everyone does what they believe to be is good. Yeah. Uh, it's just we don't know, because of our ignorance, what that is. Right. Yeah, and, and I think that if you follow that, then it would make sense that the most educated among us will always be the morally superior. <laughs> you know, at least I would hope so. Uh, that that would be the case. No, I, I, I do understand the point. That that because not education is not necessarily education in virtue, Correct. right? Um, and I think that what that what that uh, and that is one of the what is one of the commonly held uh, you know views. And that was Rousseau's view. Uh, Rousseau's view is that people are naturally innocent. What they don't know is how to handle um, evil when they see it in the world. Right. So when evil is in the world and you're a naturally innocent person, Rousseau says you're 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 a victim. You're 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 a victim of it, and so you need education in order to be able to know how to resist that. Um, and 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 that makes sense. But I'll, but I think that raises the question: Well, then how did that evil get in the world? You know, how did that then then why did that happen in the in in, in the first place that there would be such widespread evil so that innocent people have to be protected from it? It just it, it's it's a, it's a it's the puzzle that the that the believer in human innocence has to answer is how widespread this is. But can I just respond to that? Sure. Uh, I think um, so. I'll ask Eric. Can he respond to that? May I? I'm sorry. <laughs> someone else have a question? You can and you may. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you kindly, sir. Um, I just uh, I guess what I'm saying is I don't I don't think that. Um, uh, <sighs> The, the, the conception of innocence obviates the, the problem that it's, wi- that it's widespread. I mean, yeah. certainly, I mean, I think Socrates was well aware of the depravity of human, of human nature, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, I'm talking about psychologically, I think this idea of, of sin consciousness, I yeah. think a lot of Orthodox churches get into mm-hmm. this the heaviness mm-hmm. of, of sin, that I'm right. sinful, I'm a miserable right. worm, I'm a wretch. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I feel like psychologically that that inhibits someone from realizing their full potential in, in the sense of that, like, they have, a, they have a, basically a poor self-image, an unhumble self-image in the sense that right. they don't see them as they, as right. they actually are. Right, yeah. And I think, that, I, think, I think that's a very important point. Because, of course, original sin is only one of the things that Christianity teaches, right? And, and, and one, it, it also teaches the infinite uh, and everlasting and unshakable love of God. And there are some people who just don't need to be told anymore how sinful they are. I mean, there are, certain, there are some people who beat up on themselves so much already, who feel so hopeless and so helpless, that the last thing in the world they need is to be told, you're, you're a sinful wretch, you know. <laughs> um, oh. And they need to be told because it's hard for them to accept the, the love that God has for them. But the, 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 and, and that's why 
um, it's so important that when, when Whitfield, Whitfield was bringing the message of original sin to coal miners who had been told all of their lives that they were inferior people. But, and, and so you would think that that would be the worst thing you would say. That would be the thing most guaranteed to turn them off. But what he said to them over and over again is that, yeah, you are a sinner. You are rebel, uh, rebel against God. You need God's grace, but you don't need it any more than I do. And you don't need it any more than the Duchess of Buckingham does. And I think the one most extraordinary discovery for me in writing this book was to see that the effect of the doctrine of original sin, when it's taught properly, what this, this has nothing to do with whether it's true, right? But just the effect of it when it's taught properly is that it has a kind of an egalitarian effect. That is, it, it puts everybody in the same boat and it makes it impossible for people to claim a kind of an innate moral superiority. So I think if it's taught well, it actually gives more of that compassion and that egalitarian, even democratic spirit than the idea of human innocence does. That's my inclination anyway, based on but that's Thank an excellent you. question. Thank you, sir. Yeah. You have to speak very loudly, but it won't be on the tape. Sorry, I have a question. Yeah, I'll repeat the question. I'll repeat the question. Once she asks it. Right. this generalized state of nature relationship yeah. and makes our own sinfulness what we cope with. Yeah. What, what, what were Whitfield's views about baptism? Uh, Whitfield was an Anglican, and um, uh, and and what that meant, what, he was a, a Calvinist Anglican, and what that meant was that he practiced infant baptism, and he uh, and he encouraged that. Um, but um, baptism for for Whitfield is actually minimized compared to what it is in certain other. Uh, uh, traditions. One of the things I discovered, this was the other thing I discovered in the course of this, is, is um, uh, so, so an unfortunate event. I'm, I'm changing the subject slightly just in order to, to, to address this issue. The issue of baptism became really interesting to me because of Augustine's view. Augustine kind of got backed into some corners late in his life. He was a great man and a great saint, but but he kind of got backed into some corners and said some things that I wish he had never said and uh, because of some of the, uh, the, the influence that his ideas have had. And one of, one of his ideas was simply this, unbaptized children go to hell, period. And, and, and the influence of that idea in the West was pretty catastrophic because it had, it had an enormous, it, it just, and when you think about that, if you are living in a time when the infant mortality rate is as high as it was throughout the Middle Ages and well on up and through the 19th century, and you think about how many women gave birth either to stillborn children or to children who died soon after their birth, to be told that you were in this kind of race, that, that you, to get them baptized before they died or they suffered eternal damnation, um, that was the fate of countless women and, and, and men as well, fathers as well, for, for hundreds of years. And it's largely because of this sense that baptism was the actual right of baptism itself was the only means by which God could be gracious to people and welcome them into the kingdom of heaven. So Whitfield is, lives in an age when they're de-emphasizing baptism to some degree. He expected everyone who converted to be baptized, but he de-emphasizes it to some degree because there had become these superstitions.
conditions that were associated with it. Uh, somebody was waiting in line. Are they still here? No? They've recanted? Webb, thank you. <laughs> Um, I'd like to actually tie those your last two comments together um, in in asking. Uh, you mentioned before about Whitfield when the doctrine of original sin is taught properly, it has this egalitarian effect. Right. Um, well, that begs the question of what is the proper teaching of original yeah. sin, and Augustine is it's usually laid at his feet as the one who originated the yeah. notion of original yeah. sin. And in the process of your study, of this it. Uh, did you find that to be, in fact, correct, mm -hmm. that uh, Augustine's formulation of the doctrine is the one that has carried through, or have there been refinements of it that led to Whitfield's proper formulation? Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, no, Augustine wasn't the, he wasn't the initiator. I think, it's, I think it's clearly wrong to say that he invented it. Um, but it's right to say that he placed more emphasis on it than any theologian had before and that he is the one who put it in a form that became tremendously influential. One of the, I didn't mention this, but one of the other things that got, that, that got me interested in this topic was to, uh, talking with a friend of mine who is a Russian Orthodox priest, and, uh, and, 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 and I made some reference to Augustine's idea that to be, you know, a, the child, to, to be a child of Adam means that you're born into sin, and you're born into the sin of Adam. And he said, well, you know, that's not how we tend to think of it. And I said, what, what do you mean? He said, it's not, not that I disagree with that so much. He said, but we tend to say that to be a child of Adam means that you're born into death. And it's, it's an interesting way of putting it, you know. That, and so for, for, from, for them to be uh, welcomed into the church through baptism is to be welcomed into life. And, and that's just, I just thought that's, I really, I was fascinated by that way of putting it. I thought there's a real, there's a, there's a richness there to that, that the Augustinian view, while it's a, uh, it has a, a, you know, comes from scripture in many ways and, and it's, it's valid, it's powerful. It's not the only way to talk about these issues. And there is something very moving, I think, about the idea that baptism takes people from the realm of death into the realm of life. I think that's very moving. Which would you say is a more prideful perspective, that of the doctrine of the original sin or predestination? Um, more prideful? Yes. Um, I, think, I think both of those doctrines have um, widely different effects on people according to how they hold them. Right, that that I think probably there, we all know of people who for whom um, the 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 doctrine of predestination is sort of like having family money or something. You know, it's that that we you know I belong to to uh, you know I have the right inheritance here. You know, and 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 these you know poor folks out here. You know, these schlemiels out here that they don't have that, and that becomes that becomes. You know, obviously, then the doctrine of predestination can be very dangerous to people who think that way. Then again, you could end up like William Cooper, the great poet and hymn writer, who came to think that he was, because he, he was walking by the Thames on a cloudy day, the clouds parted, the sun came out. He said, and he thanked God because he understood that sun to be a sign of God's favor to him. Later on, he said, no, nah, that wasn't God's favor to me. That was just a meteorological you know, phenomenon of the moment. And, and he said, that was silly of me to make so much of it. Later on, he thought, that proves that I 
am predestined to reprobation. Because someone who was elect would have known that that was God's favor to them. But I questioned it, I doubted it, and I rejected it. And so, therefore, I am predestined to be damned. So, so there's a case of someone who, 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 for whom the doctrine of predestination made him miserable, uh, almost beyond imagination. Um, and, there's a, there's a, and, he, and, and, and he died in that kind of misery, even though he gave some of the most wonderful hymns to the church. When I think of, of William Cooper, I always think of the passage from the first letter of John, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And I, I think that, so, so there's a case, in, but then there is, in the, the Book of Common Prayer, says, in the Anglican Church, says that the doctrine of predestination is a source of unspeakable comfort. Because if you understand the doctrine of predestination rightly, you know that God has hold of you and he's not going to let you go. So there are healthy ways to think about it, and then there are profoundly unhealthy ways to think about it. And I think original, it's the same thing with original sin. I think that there are both healthy and unhealthy ways to hold the doctrine. The problem is that no Christian teaching can be evaluated properly in isolation. You know, it has to be, you have to see it in relation to all of the other core Christian teachings. And, 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 and if you lose sight of those, then, then particular beliefs can really get out of balance. So there was one of my concerns in writing a book about original sin. Was I going to end up overstressing something that at least for some people didn't need to be overstressed? Um, you sort of wonder about that. I, I, you know, somebody, um, a, a last comment, not even really along these lines, but it just comes to mind, is that... Um, uh, when Karl Barth, the great uh, reform theologian from Switzerland, was making one of his lecture tours of the U.S., someone actually asked him uh, in a Q&A session like this that if he could sum up his theology in just a few words, what would it be? This is the guy who has written the church dogmatics, you know, 14 volumes, 700 pages each, you know, and they asked him in a few words, <laughs> what, a, what an outrageous question, and, and, and Barth thought about it, and then he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> so sometimes you just have to get out of these things and come back to, to, uh, to your roots, you know. Remember the things that you were taught in the nursery. Thank you. Uh, the, the so-called emergent church has been mm-hmm. accused of uh, raising Christian anthropology and lowering Christology mm-hmm. with an overly optimistic understanding out of a response to lifeboat theology. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got yeah. to get out. This is yeah. it. And it's yeah. all. Um, do you see that kind of an inverse correlation between a, a, a high anthropology and a steadily lowering Christology? Well, I, I, think, I, think, that's often, I think that's often the case, but, but it doesn't have to be. Um, you know, there's uh, here, here, here's another random anecdote, but maybe not so random. Uh, you know, I think it was maybe in the 1950s that someone asked the uh, great uh, Chinese uh, uh, Marxist leader Chou Enlai um, what he thought about the French Revolution, and his answer was, "It's too soon to tell." Um, and 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 I think that that's uh, there's actually a lot of wisdom in that. And, and um, the, the same, I would say exactly the same about the emergent church movement. The emergent church movement is, is, is in general arguing that there are people whom traditional churches have never been able to reach, who are just completely unsympathetic to anything that traditional churches have to say, 
and, and that they hope to welcome them in a different way into the Christian orbit. And, 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 and what I hear from many of these leaders is that they have no interest at all in overturning Christian theology or biblical teaching, but they want to bring people into the faith in a radically different way. And by their own account, it's not something that's likely to bring about immediate uh, and uh, discernible conversions. By their own account, it's something that's going to take some time to develop. That what you know, not only is the church emerging, but the believers are emerging. You know, and so um, my, my inclination is to say it's too soon to tell about those churches. I, I think that at a certain point, what has to happen uh, for a healthy church is for the Christology to be raised. You know, that has to be raised up to its proper position, the sense of who Christ is and what He does. Um, and if it if it isn't then those churches are, um, uh, in the long run, I don't think will be very successful. So I want to wait and see. If I can follow up, Mm -hmm. do you see the root of that being uh, in the anthropological area, which is what you're writing into, that that we have too high an understanding of ourselves so that that the... uh, uh, the prayer of humble access, we do not presume to come right. to this thy table, right. is just an unheard yeah. of. Yeah, no, it is. It, I mean, because that's a language that's really hard for people to say, right? Uh, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under thy table. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a tough thing for many people to say. And it's a tough thing for many people to be attracted to a church that says that. But, and, and, there's a, and there's a way for that to be scandalous so that, so that churches will say, I'm not going to say anything negative or critical of people because then I'll scare them away. If that's, if that's what they're doing, then in the long run it's not going to flourish. But to talk about, uh, if I may talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and you, know, you can like, cover your ears or something like that because you know, Eric is, this is what he's been obsessed with lately. But, but when, when, when Bonhoeffer talked about what he called religionless Christianity, what he was talking about from a totally orthodox point of view was the idea that people can't hear that language now and they have to be addressed, as he put it, not at their point of weakness but at their point of strength. That is that we have to find a way to preach the gospel, in, he, he said, so that it touches people at their point of strength and confidence, not only at their point of weakness and desolation. And, and Bonhoeffer didn't say that as someone who was at all shy about traditional Christian teaching. I actually think, you know, Bonhoeffer wrote that, uh, what, 64 years ago, I guess? Yeah, 64 years ago he was writing those words. I don't think Christians have caught up to him yet. I don't think, I don't think we're even close to catching up to what he was really saying in those words. But if we do, then, then if, if, if the emergent church can find out to do, how to do that, then the emergent church will be one of the greatest gifts uh, of, of our century. Thank but I don't know whether it will. 